Good morning, witches. This is the Witch Daily Show, coming to you from New Orleans, with host Tanya Brown. Our episodes span about 20 minutes long to give you just a little pop of magic. So, tune in, take a deep breath, and enjoy. It is Monday. I am Tanya, and this is the Witch Daily Show. Today's episode is brought to you by the Weed Witches Journal. So let's get your day going with a little magic. Our quote of the day is It takes courage to grow up and become who you really are by E.E. E. Cummings. So we are back after our hiatus. And I'm so excited to share all of the super fun things I have planned for us this year. I have some awesome guests already lined up. I have already planned out most of our year, and I am just over the moon. Uh, thank you for giving me a break uh, two weeks, and I was able to go and do my little things that I like to do, including hosting the first ever uh, Academy for Extraordinary Witches event. And that was so much fun and so fulfilling. And it's a really, really small um, event. And it is basically a membership uh, society. It's, it's a witches social society. And we throw this amazing event every year. And I had so much fun. Uh, however, it is like really, really kind of closed off to the members of it. Um, however, sometimes we do have an opening. So if that's something you ever think you'll be interested in and you want to check out um, how to join or join our waiting list, you can go to academyforextraordinarywitches.com and go to learn more. And the password to view that page is seance. You can join the waiting list. And when we have openings, you'll get an email that says, hey, we have an opening. However, I cannot guarantee how quickly openings may come. Because it is a members club and there's only a certain number of slots, we may only have the ability to fill one slot a year. Um, so if you're if you could ever be interested, join the waiting list, um, and that'll just give you the opportunity to join if that ever interests you, or if there's ever an availability. Anyways, that's my once a year mention of this thing I do. Um, so yeah, I'll probably not mention it again until this time next year. <laughs> so moving into our tea. So something I want to do this year is, and I'll, I'll, I'll still focus on tea, but I also want to focus on some other things. And for January, I really wanted us to focus on all of the things we ate in December. So December has some pretty unique food traditions and lores. And I thought it'd be cool if we kind of focused on that a little bit in January. Like all the things coursing through your bloodstream right now, what's the information on it? So I had to start with the most obvious, the chestnut. The chestnut. What is a chestnut? I don't even know. I can't even guarantee I've ever eaten one. I have no idea. But it's mentioned at every Christmas thing ever. So what is the chestnut? 
Well, this comes to us from the American Chestnut Foundation, who knew, .org. So the American chestnut once dominated portions of the eastern U.S. forest, numbering in nearly 4 billion. The tree was among the largest and tallest, fastest growest in the forest. And for many centuries, the original inhabitants of the Appalachians coexisted with the American chestnut. Chestnuts are dense with calories rich in vitamin C and antioxidants, and the leaves contain higher levels of essential plant nutrients than other local tree species, which made chestnuts very beneficial. So insects would feed on them, birds, fish, larger animals, squirrels, beer, beer, deer and bears, turkeys. Yeah, chestnuts were just like a really popular part of existence. So as European settlers arrived and forcibly displaced indigenous peoples, they soon learned the chestnut wood was rot-resistant, straight-grained, and suitable for furniture, fencing, and oak materials. So it was the preferred wood for log cabins, fence posts, flooring, caskets, etc. So the American chestnut tree was a significant uh, contributor to rural agriculture for an extremely long time. Uh, you know, throughout the 19th century. So despite its demise as a lumber and nut crop species, the American chestnut is not extinct. The bright cannot kill the underground root system as the pathogen is unable to compete with soil micro, uh, microorganisms. Uh, stump sprouts grow vigorously. So the cycle of death and rebirth has kept the species alive despite um the uh lumber industry so i think that's really neat i actually had no idea chestnuts were so common throughout the early days of indigenous america that's really fascinating yeah do you eat chestnuts are chestnuts in your food can you get them at the store i don't think i've ever seen a chestnut are they this says they're not extinct, but I don't think I've seen one. Anyways, which is moving into some headlines. This comes to us from Aeon.com, and it talks about uh, memes and magic. So magic in the modern world. So deep in the labyrinth tags of TikTok, a group of teenage occultists promise they have the power to help you change your life. Manifesting influencers, as they've come to be known, Promise their legions of viewers that with the right amount of focus and positive thinking, the universe will bend to their will. Most of these people end up doing what they say they're going to do and being who they say they're going to become. Insists one speaker of the Mindset Vibrations account, along with other influencers. It's not just TikTok. Throughout the wider wellness and spirituality subcultures of social media, manifesting, the art of science and magic, attracting positive energy into your life through internal focus and meditation, and harnessing that energy to achieve material results is part and parcel of the well-regulated spiritual and personal life. It's, yeah, TikTok influencers and wellness gurus regularly encourage their followers to focus, law of attraction style, on their desired life goals in order to bring them into reality. So it's possible, of course, to read manifesting as yet another vaguely spiritual wellness trend up there with 
um, sage cleansing and lighting Voda's candles with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's face on them. But to do so would ignore the increasingly visible intersection of occult and magical practices and the internet subcultures. As our technology has grown ever more powerful, our control over nature seemingly is ever more absolute. Sometimes it seems like this whole internet is full of would-be magicians, witch talk, and other left occult phenomena, largely framed around the reclaiming of ancient matriarchal or indigenous practices as being resistant to the patriarchy. And it has popularized the esoteric among large, uh, large progressive members of Gen Z. So these are starting to be called known as meme magicians. And I think this is really fascinating. It talks about, um, it's a really fascinating article, which I'll link in our link tree. So if you really want to dig into it, you can. But it's talking about how cultism is becoming memefied, right? And I've kind of touched on this with a little pushback from people. But there is this, it sometimes feels like if it's not a, if if you can't learn like all of witchcraft in a, in a 30 second tiktok no one wants to hear about it and what's difficult about this is it creates the inability to give true understanding true nuance true mastery true gray thinking to where it's like it feels like we're losing the ability to think beyond just i want this show me how to get it i don't want to hear anything else you know, um, I saw a TikTok recently where someone was like, oh, let me explain the history of this, uh, you know, Israel-Palestine conflict. And someone stitched it with, we don't need to hear history to know what's right and wrong. And that's so um, – that really scared me a little bit because it sometimes feels like there's an entire generation of well-meaning people who just want to be pointed at what to think and what to care about and what's right and what's wrong. And they don't want to learn about what's right and what's wrong. They just want to rely on being told, just tell me who to be mad at. Just tell me who to cancel. Just tell me um, which is the right side and the wrong side. And while I love the passion, love the passion, the Unwit the unwanting to learn is what's upsetting because you can tell someone, hey, just so you know, two plus two is four. Just so you know, two plus two is four. Just so you know, two plus two is four. But if you don't tell them why two plus two is four, what's going to happen when they encounter two plus three? They're not going to understand because you never taught them why, you know? Um, but this is a really interesting article. It kind of digs into. Um, occultism, uh, the long history of, uh, you know, human freedom, intellectual endeavors, um, the hermetic, uh, alchemy, astrology, magic, philosophy, all of these things, and the memification, um, kind of the shallow understanding of it which I think is really, really fascinating. And I think it's something um, people who talk about occultism, like I do, witchcraft, should go with, right? Because like we only talk for 20 minutes. I want it to be fun, interesting. I want to cover a variety of topics. I can't get too crazy deep on anything, but I also don't want to just be like, 
hey, girlies, here's your affirmation for the day. Okay, bye. Good thoughts. Peace. You know what I mean? Like, I do want this to be valuable. I want it to be substantial. I want it to be meaningful. I want to um, share the things I've learned over 20-something years. And it's a, it, it is a really, really hard balance because uh, the capitalistic uh, algorithm really promotes just be quick, don't explain anything, just show them what they want and move on. Uh, but however, I think that's creating a longer term issue with the ability to learn, you know. Anyways, fascinating article. If that's anything that interests you at all, um, I'll link it in our link tree. And yeah, so I don't know, I guess kind of if I have any message, it's just consume witchcraft and occults content, brands, people mindfully and question, am I really getting um, substantial knowledge from this or am I just being taught that two plus two equals four? You know, anyways, um, I didn't plan to go into all that, so it may not be perfect. I'm so sorry, <laughs> but I'm going to throw this over to our moon correspondent. And after this break, we will talk more. Hello to all of my astro friends. This is Serendipity, the Chicago astrologer, coming at you with your daily moon mantra for Monday, January 15th. The waxing crescent moon moves from the imaginings of Pisces to the rodeos of Aries today. Here, the moon conjuncts Neptune. This is quite the dreamy aspect. This energy encourages us to disconnect from the outer world and get in touch with our inner world. On a day like today, if you take some time to tune into yourself, you will hear your inner voice with crystal clear clarity. Take some time to really give over to that inner voice. We can't always connect with ourselves so strongly, so a day like today is a real gift. Your daily moon mantra is, What you are trying to cultivate is not blind optimism, but radical hope. This has been your Daily Moon Mantra with Serendipity, the Chicago Astrologer, signing off and reminding you that you are in charge of your own destiny. Asheville Pagan Supply is a witch-owned and operated old-age metaphysical pagan supply store located in the Blue Ridge Mountain town of Asheville, North Carolina. Our shop specializes in high-quality products created by local magic practitioners and craftspersons with an emphasis on sourcing products that are botanical, organic, ecologically conscious, and affordably priced. We are extremely proud of our knowledgeable and friendly staff who are always prepared to answer questions and personally assist customers with their purchases. Our belief has always been that our business presence in the community offers a normalcy to pagan practices, and in educating the general public, we assist in dispelling myths and stereotypes associated with different pagan practices. Open since July of 2014, we focus on our local community and hosting workshops and events. Visiting Asheville? Find us. Just look for the raven with the key. Or shop 24-7 at AshevillePaganSupply.store. That's A-S-H-E-V-I-L-L-E-P-A-G-A-N Supply.store. Blessed be. All right, we are back. So we are talking a little bit about American witch trials today. And we talked about Salem, obviously. Everyone talks about Salem. But 
have you heard about the witchcraft trials in colonial Virginia? And that is what we're talking about today. And this comes to us from encyclopediavirginia.org. So the English colonists who came to Virginia in 1607 believed in the reality of witchcraft before they even set foot on North American soil. Their Christian faith had deep roots, and they perceived the natural world as a place uh, that could be shaped by supernatural forces. Witch trials had been a part of English life for centuries, and Parliament had passed a law criminalizing the practice of witchcraft in 1542. So the men and women who settled an English colony at Jamestown would have considered witchcraft to be a real and very punishable offense. The English colonists believed the uh, indigenous people they encountered to be devils, or at least devil worshippers. In their descriptions of uh, Virginia, the Jamestown colonists often used supernatural terms, uh, such as more like a devil than a man, making noise like so many wolves and devils, very familiar with the devil, their priests, uh, like very religious supernatural terms. All this led to the colonists and most Englishmen to conclude, as Puritan minister William Crashaw did in 1613, that Satan visibly and palpably reigned in Virginia more than in any other place of in the world, which, what a statement. Initially, it was easier for the English to connect the indigenous people's unfamiliar appearances and rituals to their understanding of demonology and through their worldview, which had been very much shaped through this Christian um, fire and brimstone education. The early English interpretation of native life in Virginia did much to support the widespread contemporary belief that the practice of witchcraft was most common in the wild parts of the world. So around 1622, once the Virginia colony had stabilized and its English population grew, the colonists began to turn their suspicions inward, no longer focusing on the accusations. So let's get into the witchcraft cases. So most Virginia's colonial-era court records were destroyed in fires during the American Civil War, so it's impossible to know exactly how many witchcraft cases were heard in Virginia and when. Historians know of some two dozen cases dealing with witchcraft in colonial Virginia. Most of these cases are defamation suits resulting from slander or gossip, and in fact, the only Virginia law to specifically address witchcraft passed in Norfolk County in 1655. But to go after false accusers of witchcraft who had to pay a fine of 1,000 pounds of tobacco, which I didn't know tobacco was a currency. I might be late to that information. Uh, in criminal witchcraft cases, Virginia courts adhered to, witch, to, to England's witchcraft law. A 1604 statute passed under James I called an act against congregation witchcraft dealing with evil and wicked spirits. In Virginia, these cases deal mostly with the charge of malfasium, which is causing harm to people or property by supernatural means. So the earliest witchcraft allegations on record against an English settler in the British North America colonies were made in Virginia, surprisingly not Salem, in September of 1626. The accused, Joan Wright of James City County, was married to a woman and a midwife. Oh, no, sorry. 
Joan Wright of James City County was a married woman and midwife. A number of Wright's neighbors testified against her, alleging that through witchcraft she had caused the death of a newborn, killed crops and livestock, and accurately predicted the deaths of other colonists. Okay, sometimes when I hear accurately predicted the death, I always think, was she just like, hey, don't eat that mushroom, it'll kill you? And they're like, which? So Wright was often, um, so Wright was acquitted despite her own admission that she did in fact have knowledge of witchcraft practices. Mushrooms, I'm telling you. Uh, the charges against Wright are typical of many witch trials during the colonial period at a time when most misfortunes like crop failure, illness, or death had no apparent cause. Witchcraft was a relatively logical explanation. An eccentric or unpopular member of the community made a convenient scapegoat. The fact that Wright was a woman is typical, too. In the surviving records of witchcraft cases in Virginia, only two accused witches were men, reflecting a trend that also exists in the legal records of England and Massachusetts Bay, Bay uh, Colony. The most famous witch trial in colonial Virginia is the case of Grace Sherwood of Princess Anne County. Sherwood was first accused by her neighbors in 1698 of having bewitched their pigs to death and bewitched their cotton. Later that year, another neighbor claimed that said Grace came to her one night and rode her. Whoa. I didn't expect that. Let's start this again. Let's start this over. <laughs> okay. The neighbor said Grace came to her one night and rode her and went out of the keyhole or crack in the door like a black cat. Grace Sherwood and her husband James brought de defamation suits against the accusers, but did not win either case. The rumors and accusations continued until 1706 when Sherwood stood trial before the general court. After a long investigation, the court justices decided to use the water test to determine her guilt of innocence. Ooh, proof that they actually did this. The test, which was so controversial that it was no longer used on the European continent at the time of Sherwood's trial, involved binding the accused hands and feet and throwing them into a body of water. Wow. A defendant who sank was presumed innocent because the water, a pure element, had accepted him or her. A defendant who floated was presumably guilty. Sherwood floated. She was convicted and imprisoned by 1714. Yeah, wow. Um, but she was later released. Sherwood's case reflects how reluctant Virginia authorities were to execute convicted witches. English law prescribed harsh punishment for witchcraft, with the most extreme being pains of death, but no person accused of the crime in colonial Virginia was executed. By a comparison, in Massachusetts, 19 so-called witches were executed in 1692. The last witchcraft law, or the last witchcraft trial on record in Virginia, took place in 1730, five years before Parliament repealed the English statute against witchcraft. She was convicted and whipped 39 times. This was likely the last criminal case of witchcraft tried in any of the mainland colonies. 
The same year, Benjamin Franklin published in the Pennsylvania Gazette a satirical report of a witch trial in New Jersey. His elaborate mocking descriptions of the practices of court justices and trying witches illustrate the beginning of a shift in the colonial perception of witchcraft from terrifying reality to puritanical fantasy. Or bewitching their cotton. Oh, it really is absolutely wild. But um, I figured we never get to hear about American witch trials outside of Salem. So I thought that would be a very interesting way to start our year. Anyways. <laughs> All right, witches. We are wrapping up this episode of the Witch Daily Show. We have a card pull today from a new deck that we are using called the Roast Iconic Oracle. So we're going to be roasted all month. I'm down. If you're down, I'm down. So our card today is the Oracle from the iconic roast Oracle deck. Okay. Oh, no, it doesn't have any numbers or any table of contents. This is why I like to do this, because... Um, you should know kind of what to expect when you get this and just know the cards don't have any numbers, no page correspondences and no table of contents. So you have to kind of flip through the whole book to find your card. Okay. Our card is Oracle. You already know. Stop second and third guessing your intuition. Hmm. I like that. All right. So I do want to give some shout outs to Tammy Ann. Tammy, you poetic, pretty fay queen. Amy Suze, you glorious, innocent land mermaid. Kristen Northcutt, you rule breaking, dapper gnome. And finally, Kelly Corrado, you fancy, glittery oracle. <laughs> Thank you for so much for being Patreon supporters. I really appreciate it. And before we go, we do have some housekeeping. Like I said, we are back. Um, one of our biggest changes this year is we are now going to have episodes on Wednesdays. What, what? Uh, we had stopped doing Wednesdays because that was meant for guests. Um, but I couldn't keep up to having an entire guest per week. So now we're just going to do Wednesdays and guests will be a surprise. There we go. All right, witches, don't forget any books, sex headlines, sources, anything we referenced today can be found in the podcast episode description or witchpod.com. And we will talk again tomorrow. Bye. Witches, we hope you have a wonderful day full of joy and gentleness and confidence. Links for this week's episodes, our website, Patreon, along with a free daily card pull can be found at witchpod.com. One stop for everything we talk about. Now, take one more deep breath and have a great day. <laughs>